Well, uh, good morning, and my name is John, one of the other pastors here, and uh, we are the chosen few this morning, <laughs> And uh, but I am glad that you guys are here because the only thing worse than preaching to a small group is preaching to just your wife and kids, and uh, <laughs> it's not pleasant for anybody. Uh, so I'm glad that all of you are here to worship uh, with us. I'd invite you uh, to open to our scripture passage to Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21. Uh, Exodus 20, 18 to 21. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and, Mo- and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of the Lord will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would speak to us. Uh, Lord, though uh, we are a few in number right now, we trust that you have called each person who is here. And it is not by accident that we are here. We trust that you have a message for us, and we pray that you, through the power of your Spirit, would speak into each one of our hearts and minds, and that you would build us up more to look like Jesus today. Father, we pray that you would do something miraculous through the power of your Word as we hear it proclaimed and as we gather for worship. So we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I think it was the summer of 2003, and uh, the artillery battery that I was uh, part of at that time, we were just finishing up this two-week training exercise in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And one of the last events was what is called a direct fire competition. And so normally artillery, which are these really big guns, shoot uh, these 100-pound rounds on a big curve, right, kind of like this, to targets far off in the distance. But let's say suddenly uh, there is some direct threat right in front of you and like a tank or whatever it might be. And suddenly you'll need to lower that howitzer gun from shooting at a trajectory up here and lower it down to shoot in a direct line of fire. You're turning that howitzer into a rifle, a really, really big rifle. And there were different gun crews and whichever gun crew could hit the target the fastest which is usually some old tank or Humvee out in the field, would win the prize that day. And so each crew would take their turn, and we would watch everybody go. And it was pretty awesome to see because the howitzer is a big gun. It's some 40 feet long, right? From, it would fill this room from one end to the other, and it shakes the ground when it fires. But you don't often get to see the impact of those rounds because you're shooting some target many kilometers away. But with direct fire, you can watch the gun fire, and then you can see the explosion out in the field. And so partway through the competition, all of a sudden, I heard this thunk, and this Marine, about 15 yards to my right, fell right over. (laughs) And we're looking down, and lying next to him was this smoking piece of shrapnel (laughs) that had flown some 600 meters from where it exploded all the way and clocked this guy right in his Kevlar helmet and knocked him over like a bowling pin. And it rang his bell pretty good, but he got up, shook it off, let the shrapnel cool down, 
and kept it as a souvenir. <laughs> and the range officer suddenly made a new role. Okay, don't shoot at any target you know, closer than 800 meters. They need to be more than 800 meters away. That direct fire was pretty awesome to watch, but suddenly awesome took on a whole new meaning. You know, some awesome things, you want to get up close to experience it fully. But there are other things that are so awesome, you realize, I need to actually take a couple steps back for the sake of my health. And in our passage today, the Israelites learn how awesome their God is. He's so awesome, they don't want to get too close to him. We're coming to the end, we're wrapping up this second part of our series through the book of Exodus called The Gift of the Law. And God has just thundered out his law from Mount Sinai, and the Israelites are struck by how awesome he is. So, borrowing from 90s Christian music, the thing I want you to remember this morning is our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. And we're going to look at this just under two points. First, a good mediator, and then second, a proper fear. So we've spent a long time in the Ten Commandments looking at each one commandment by commandment. And so I want us to review kind of the story before and after God gave the Ten Commandments. If you remember, before this, the Israelites had not heard God speak to them directly. It was always God spoke to Moses, and then Moses went to the people and told the people what God said. The people only knew God from a distance. They knew that Yahweh was the God of their ancestors, and they had been told he is the God above all gods, and he had made promises to their forefathers, but they'd only known him from afar. And like any long-distance relationship, the longer it goes on, that desire to to meet that person face-to-face just gets greater. And so finally, after getting redeemed out of Egypt, a long trek through the desert, they finally arrive at Mount Sinai, and they are going to meet this God who has redeemed them. And so back in Exodus 19, God gives Moses this list of instructions to get the people ready for this meeting. Maybe it's like if you're going on a first date, and you're really concerned. You, you take a shower. You obsess, how am I going to do my hair? What clothes am I going to wear? I want to make a good first impression on this date. And similarly, the people have all these instructions. They clean up, they purify themselves to prepare to meet their God in person. And so then that day comes, and they draw close to the mountain, and God speaks, and they get to hear his voice for themselves. And he speaks these Ten Commandments that we've just went through. And so now, it doesn't seem like this took that long, even though it took us a long time to get through it. And what is the people's first impression after meeting their God. It's something kind of surprising. Uh, Moses, next time, can you just speak to us? God's kind of intimidating. We can't handle any more of his voice. And it, it wasn't that God was a boring speaker. It's actually quite the opposite. God was such a compelling speaker, they're worried they're going to have a heart attack. They're worried about being too close to the mountain that mountain that is swirling with lightning and thunder that they might get hit by some shrapnel. And they think, we need to take a few steps back. Suddenly those warnings back in chapter 19, like verse 21, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them would perish. Suddenly those hypothetical warnings in chapter 19 become real. God wasn't joking when he said, stay far away. 
we need to just back up a little bit to be safe. And notice in the text how many senses are engaged as they experience God. In verse 18, they see thunder and lightning. And the word lightning there, it's hard to translate. It's only used one other place in the entire Old Testament. It's used in Genesis 15 when God makes this covenant to Abraham. And in verse 17, it says, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch, the same Hebrew word there is translated as lightning in our passage, appeared and passed between the pieces. Moses here is struggling to depict what is going on. So he uses a word that he uses only in one other place in the scriptures that he wrote to describe this presence of God, this flaming presence of God when he made a covenant with Abraham. And now God is making a covenant with Abraham's descendants. And maybe it's not best to think of it as lightning in the, in the traditional sense, but, but what do you see when there's lightning in storm clouds? Storm clouds, there's this, it, it illuminates the entire cloud. So there are these black storm clouds on top of Sinai and they keep lighting up with the presence of God. Their ears are also engaged. They hear trumpet blasts. Now, these might not be literal trumpets. There's no command from God to have the people sound the trumpet horns. But several times here and in chapter 19, it talks about the sound of trumpets. My guess is it's the angelic announcers from God's very throne room who are thundering from heaven, this royal herald to say, God is here. These aren't your average trumpets. They make howitzer blasts sound like flutes. And then they see the mountain in smoke. Maybe it looks like a volcanic eruption. I would guess they smell it as well. And what is their reaction on this first date with their God? They tremble with fear. They stay at a distance. Their first meeting didn't go anything like they planned. It was way more intense than they expected. And think about everything that the Israelites have experienced so far. They've seen the 10 plagues and the awesomeness of them. They've crossed the Red Sea with those towers of water. These weren't green troops who were just antsy and jumping at every sound. They'd seen a lot. And yet Sinai still left them shaking in their sandals. And let's... Let's back up a little bit. You may have sung, if you grew up with 90s youth group music, that song, Our God is an Awesome God. But when was the last time you actually felt that? When was that last time that you experienced God in such a way that you think, man, maybe I need to scoot back a little bit? The awesomeness of God is so great, I don't want to get so close. And you see, this applies to us so practically because the thing is, is God biggest in your mind? Or are other things more awesome that you're seeking after? What is it that controls you? What is it that you fear? What is it that dictates what you do and what you don't do? What is it that voice in the back of your head that is always saying this thing or that thing? And until God is bigger than all those things, he won't truly be God in your life. And also, is God setting the terms and conditions for your life? 
It is he's so awesome that you realize that I need to do what he says. I need to be willing to do whatever he asks because he is so awesome. And what do the people say? Moses, actually, we kind of liked how it was before when God just spoke to you and then you spoke to us. So we didn't have to deal with all of this. We liked it better. That was actually better for our health. Moses, we want you to be our mediator. Now, maybe you're familiar with that term in a, in a legal sense. Before going to trial with someone, you choose mediation, where there's a neutral third party who listens to both sides, uh, keeps balance, helps each other hear each other, and, and tries to work out some sort of compromise. And a mediator is helpful because sometimes it's even necessary, because if you have these two groups that are trying to work things out on their own, it just ends up with a fight and someone slamming the door on their way out. Mediator is a go-between, but, but the idea of a mediator is, is slightly different than that here. It's where one party is so awesome that the other isn't able to be in their presence. They need some sort of go-between because they can't get close enough. Imagine, a uh, silly example, if, say, Matt Damon uh, had his mom die, and now he owns her house and he's going to sell it. Matt Damon isn't going to be going to, everybody, to, to his mom's house to give everyone who's interested in the house a little tour, right? Oh, this is where I grew up. This is where we used to play hide and seek. This is where I would hide, right? I don't know what Matt Damon does during the day, but he's probably not going to meet people that are interested in buying his mom's house. He's got people for that. And he's got mediators that handle that for them. But even that is slightly different than what our passage is. It's not that God doesn't have time or is too important to meet with his people face to face. It's actually he's too awesome. The people can't handle their God. He's too great. We need someone who can get closer. We need someone who can handle being in God's presence, and we can handle him being in our presence. I mean, we love that God has our back. We just don't want him too close. And that brings us to our second point, a proper fear. The people tell Moses, Moses, we like your voice better. And how does Moses respond? Well, do not be afraid. Now, th this response is re remarkable. I'm, I'm struck. These are the first words out of Moses' mouth. Because you would think if I was Moses, I would want to leverage the people's fear for my own benefit. Right? The Israelites have not been the easiest traveling companions. They have lots of complaining, doubting, and questioning Moses' leadership. And if I were Moses, I'd be tempted to say, that's right, you should be afraid. And remember, God likes me, so you better listen to me, or else I won't give him a good report, and he might get back at you. Or you better be nice to me, because if you guys still keep treating me like you have been, I'm just going to quit. And then who's going to talk to God for you then? But Moses doesn't leverage their fear for his own benefit or to make his job any easier. Instead, what does he say? Do not be afraid. Moses knows something about God that the people don't. Moses understands something about God's character, his covenantal faithfulness, his deep love for these people. He knows God's commitment and those promises he made long ago to their forefather, Abraham. He knows that God's ears were attuned to their cries for help when they were alone and suffering in Egypt. He knows how much God cares for these people. 
And if you know what happens later in the story, when the Israelites mess up big time and God threatens to wipe them out and start over with Moses, who is it that even reminds God of his covenantal faithfulness? It's Moses. Exodus 32, verse 12. Moses says, turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all the land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Moses has this deep trust in God's character as his basis for why the Israelites should not fear. He's even reminding God of it. Moses trusts that no matter how hard it might get, God will be true to his word. He will not change what he said. He cannot lie. And his word is that he will take these stubborn and often stumbling people and bring them to a new and better home and turn them into a holy nation. Moses knows something these people don't. That God's dispossession towards them isn't based, disposition towards them isn't based on how well they're doing on their report cards at the moment. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to like you depending on how good you guys are doing. Better try hard, unless you want some of those Sinai fireballs headed your way. Moses tells them, the reason that you should not be afraid is because of the promises God has made to himself concerning you. And so regardless of how you do, God will stay faithful. And that is the type of mediator that you want, who knows the character of the parties involved, who can remind them of the terms of the agreement. But then Moses' initial words of do not be afraid almost seem contradicted by what he says next. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will keep you from sinning. Now to understand this, well, we first need to understand what do these words mean. And test is maybe not the most helpful translation. The New Living Translation simply says, God has come in this way. The Hebrew word is used elsewhere to describe a, a result or the produce of something, the product of something. One commentator kind of gives this para, um, paraphrase translation. God is giving you a taste of himself, so this memory will stick with you to keep you from sinning. So, one way to think about this, these aren't technical terms, but, but maybe the distinction in what Moses is getting at is the difference between being afraid of God and fearing God. Being afraid of God is what you experience when you see how great he is and you're worried about, shoot, is he coming after me next? You're afraid that God is going to rain down and just his judgment or his curses or whatever it is on you. You don't want to be on his bad side. But fearing God is being fully aware of how awesome he is, but at the same time, knowing his disposition towards you. He's faithful to his people. So that you aren't stuck always just trembling in your boots saying, oh man, does God love me or does he love me not? But you realize he is awesome and he is worthy and he remarkably, he miraculously loves me. 
And because he loves me and, and he's so awesome, how can that not change how I live my life day in and day out? I want to live a life worthy of how awesome he is. It's holding these two truths together, that God is holy. He is awesome. He shakes the foundations of the mountains, and yet he also loves me. Not because of how good I'm doing, but because he has promised to love me for better or for worse. And things go wrong in your faith when you start to tip those truths one way or the other. So that a, a fear of God turns into fearing God. So that you're always afraid. Every bad thing in your life, you think, oh, this is God getting back at me for how I screwed up years ago. I knew God doesn't really like me. You, so that you, you go to resent God. Why is God making my life so awful? You run yourself ragged, trying so hard in this life to be better than others. So you say, well, God, you should like me now. I mean, I'm doing better than they are. Or... You tip the other way where you, you think God is just all love and no, there's no reason to fear God. God becomes a bro, just this really strong bro who you can call up when you need help, but he doesn't care with what you do on the weekends. He doesn't love you enough to want you to change for the better. So we need to hold these two things in tension. God is awesome and he loves you. And so Moses hears the people's request in verse 21. And he agrees to it by walking into that dark cloud where God was. What an ominous picture. Moses is walking into the darkness as God's mediator, the people's mediator. And God has turned this mountain into a holy temple. Moses is walking into where the people are afraid to, right into the presence of God. Moses walks to where the people can't go to represent them before God. And the people are in this conundrum. They need God. He's redeemed them. He is life. And yet they're unable to get close to him. He has just told them his perfect law. And, and these commands aren't just arbitrary things. Like here's you know, God's list of preferences. But, but what he has just spoken to them is a blueprint of the very character of God. This is who I am. And when they experience that perfection, they are overwhelmed with a sense of how far they fall short. It's like when you're in the presence of a world-class athlete or a model or whatever it might be, and you stand next to them and you realize, wow, I am way below where they are. And it is even infinitely more so as the people experience God. And so they're stuck. Here is a God unlike any God this world has ever known. He is awesome and we need him. And yet he's so perfect, we can't get close to him. And so they're resigned to this long distance relationship. Moses walks into the fiery darkness where God is. And then they wait for him to come back with a message. And all of humanity has been stuck in the same conundrum. There is this God who is out there who is so great, so perfect, so beautiful, what I most need, and yet I cannot get close to him without it harming me because I am not what he is. And so what do people do? Well, we always come up 
with cheap imitations of that God. We come up with smaller gods. We trade in the howitzers for little 22 rifles. We create gods that don't make us feel so small. We create manageable gods that we can get close to. A God who gives you some life hacks, but doesn't transform your soul. Another reaction we see is, is people come to hate God because you know deep down in your heart there is a God and he is perfect and you resent him for that because you are not and so you try to live your entire life like God doesn't exist. And we do that. We knock down God a few notches so he's manageable, so we can get close to him without us getting a sense of how sinful we are. But none of those things work in the end. Because your soul was made for the infinite. You were made for God. And so you can spend your life, you can spend decades packing your soul with the things of this world and imitation gods and still feel infinitely empty. And yet the very thing that you need most, you cannot come close to, because his holiness is like a consuming fire, and we're not worthy. And what is our hope? Well, it's only in a better mediator. Not Moses, who was all human and no God, and had to spend so much of his life running back and forth, like playing the game of telephone. Okay, this is what God said, now going back, this is what they said, and back and forth and back and forth. But you see, what we have is Christ, who is fully God and fully human in one person. He doesn't have to keep going back and forth. And that means he has closed the gap between Sinai, where God is, and the bottom of the mountain where the people are. He is the union of heaven and earth in one person. He is the union of God and his people so that we can get what we most need, which is the life of God in us, to become what you were made for, to be conduits of the glory of that awesome God shining into this dark world. And how does Christ do that? Well, take Hebrews 9, 11. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered into that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. See, Jesus didn't walk into the mountain where God was temporarily residing. He walked into the very throne room of heaven. And he did that with, before walking in there, he took every one of your sins and he put them on himself. And he walked into God's throne room with that pile of junk, and he offered himself as a pure and infinite sacrifice so that you could be fully and forever cleansed, so that you could be worthy 
to be in that awesome presence of God, not because of you, but all because of Jesus. And he did it once and for all so that you have nothing to fear. He was judged so that you could be free. He makes a way for you to be in that soul-riveting presence of God and not have it destroy you, but have every fiber of your being resonate with the beauty of God. And to have this, the only way to have it is by being united to Christ, God and man in one person. You must, and the way to be united to Christ is to simply to look at him in faith and say, Jesus, I need you. There's nothing that I can bring. There's nothing that I can offer. It means that you've got to stop trying to create these whittled down versions of God that you think will be pleased with your meager efforts. It means you've got to repent of your self-righteousness and all those years of trying to add to what Jesus has already done for you. And you need to surrender it all and look to Jesus and say, he is all I need. He is enough. I must feed on Christ and Christ alone. And so why then, if Christ has done it all, does God still care about how we live? Why does then Moses say God has done this, he's redeemed you, but he gives you this so that you would stop sinning? But why does God care about that if he's already paid the check for it? Why does he want us to have a fear of him that prevents us from sinning? Well, it's for the very same reason that he gives Israel these Ten Commandments after he's redeemed them. You see, God is including his people in his plans to redeem and restore the world. And to redeem and restore people and places and all things back into harmony with God. That God's plan is to turn this world, this new creation, into his holy temple. Where all of creation and everything that has breath praises the Lord. And God doesn't tell his people, all right, you guys sit on the sidelines and I'm going to get to work and you just cheer me on. No, God says, you, my people, are the very building blocks of my beautiful community. You are the stones of my forever home. And that is why you need to look like me. And so the question for us is, is this church, is Jordan Valley Church, representing the beauty of God and how we live and how we act and how we treat others? Are we a compelling community? I don't have to tell you all what the rest of the world and our nation is going through and the darkness and the division and the hate and the anxiety and the panic. And friends, our church, Christian churches, when people come here, they need to smell the scent of heaven. They don't need to be reminded of all the things that the world is fearing. They don't need to be sucked into the same divisions that are dividing everybody else. They need to taste heaven and to realize that God is doing something in us broken, stumbling people that will one day take over the rest of the world, his enduring kingdom.
And are we living that way? Are we caring for one another in a way that reflects Christ? Are we loving others? Are we showing that what unites us, the blood of Christ, is so much stronger than what is dividing everybody else? Are we showing that our priorities are different? That is what it means to be God's people. It's a different economy. It's a different culture. It's one that represents the very beauty and awesomeness of our God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be this compelling community, and we confess how often we fail at it. Lord Jesus, the thing that this world most needs is not churches that look like the rest of the world, not churches that cater to the various factions that are dividing our country, but outposts of heaven that shine the light of Christ into our community and refuse to get sucked into these divisive ways that Satan is using to undermine your church. Father, help us to reflect the beauty of Christ. Help us to show people a better way. Help us to be a community that does smell of heaven. And people, weary travelers from the surrounding cities and neighborhoods could come here and find something so much better. Forgiveness and life in Christ. Lord, we need you to do this in our lives. We need you to do this in our church. And only you can. And so we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.